You are listening to audio from Life Community Church located in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about our ministry or to financially support God's ministry through us, please visit www.lifeccalexandria.org. You'll now join Pastor Reed Bradley as he brings us the message for today. All right, everybody, find your way back to your pew. Hello. Hi. Welcome. Glad to have everybody here with us this morning to celebrate uh, such an incredible event of baptism in the life of a believer and in the life of the church. And we are going to be continuing in our series. There I am. Continuing in our series through the book of Luke. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 9 today. If you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9. We're going to be starting in verse 18. My name is Reed Bradley. I'm the other pastor here at Life Community Church. And we are going to be doing some speed sermoning this morning because we are going to not only be covering our passage in Luke, but we're going to be reading several other passages. And uh, I'm going to be attempting to give us some clear examples of application for us from this passage this morning. I've felt very convicted through my study this week and my preparation that there are often times where a pastor will get up and and preach a sermon and you walk away thinking, well, obviously this is what they meant in terms of what I ought to do. And then later on you find out that the pastor either gives the counsel of the opposite of what you thought, or they preach another sermon the next week, and you're not really sure how to apply it. You're not really sure. It, when he said this, did, was that what he meant, or was, did he mean the other thing? Is he kind of talking about the thing that's happening in the culture? Was he responding to something that I just don't know about? Do I need to be on Facebook or Instagram to understand or connect the dots here? What, like, what purview of the, in, of the internet do I need to have taken in in order to understand what the pastor is talking about this week. So we're going to attempt to not do that this week, but instead to give you some clear understanding of what I'm talking about and what I feel like God wants us to learn from his word. And so with all that said, we're going to begin by reading in chapter eight, chapter 9, verse 18 of Luke. We're going to read verse 18 through 27, and we're going to start talking about it. So let's read. Now it happened... That as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man If he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. 
But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is God's word to us this morning. If you were to continue reading through chapter 9 of Luke, you would see that Jesus goes up to a mountain to pray along with a few of his disciples, a smaller subset of them, and he's transfigured before them. That means all of a sudden he shows forth in a radiance, a, a glowing glory before them. And they're so shocked and in awe of what is happening that they don't even know how to respond correctly. They get that glimpse of the glory, and that's here at the end of this passage what Jesus is saying, that you're going to get to see just a taste of the glory that I have. But for our passage today, I want to focus, and we're going to talk about three basic ideas that we see here in this passage. The first thing is that we have a confession of faith. And if you've been reading the Gospel of Luke up to this point, it's kind of a surprising confession of faith, if we're honest. Like, there are a couple things that are really clear, no matter which Gospel account you read. The first is that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Christ. I mean, every Gospel is very clear from the get-go. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. This is the Savior. This is the one that the Old Testament has been preparing you for. This is Him. And then the second thing that's really clear is that the disciples do not get it. Right? Like, the disciples are like, how can he do this? What's going on? I can't believe this happened. Oh, my goodness. You know, who is, who is this man? In fact, we just saw that echoed in last week's passage, as we talked about, that the disciples are on the boat. The storm is raging. Jesus is asleep. They're worried they're going to drown. And they wake him up, and they're like, don't you even care? And Jesus stands up. He rebukes the wind and the waves, and everything stops and calms down. And their question is, who is this man? And so for the fact that, that Peter answers correctly, he gets it, you would be thinking, man, we're passing around the high fives, we're excited. Jesus is like, oh man, I've been waiting for you guys to get here. Now we're going to really get started, right? But it's not what he does. He says, all right, now don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Because the reality is, is though they have the correct confession, they don't have the full understanding and they need to have some more information. They need to have some more ministry of Christ in their life so that they begin to understand a little bit more of what is to come. And the confession of faith is followed swiftly by a prediction of suffering. That Jesus says, yeah, you're right. I am the Christ. I'm the Savior. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And by the way, I'm going to die. By the way, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. I mean, talk about being a Debbie Downer, right? Like, Jesus, we should be having a party, and you kind of, you just rained a little bit on our parade. Peter says a lot of stuff. Most of it's not good, but he's, this was right. Jesus wants them to understand. He wants them to know ahead of time. Though they don't understand it now, and though he would repeat this prediction even later on in this chapter, if you continue reading, he needs them to understand this is not a surprise what's coming, that he is on his way to the cross, that the cross is planned, that the cross is purposed. Jesus is not surprised, and even though they will still be surprised, he's giving them the opportunity to see what's coming. So we have a confession of faith, we have a prediction of suffering, and then we have a call 
to follow. Call to follow. And I phrase it this way specifically because I want you to understand that Jesus is inviting you to follow. That this is an invitation. Sometimes we read words like this that are hard, that are challenging, and we think he's trying to encourage us not to follow. Or say, are you sure you really want to? Right? It's like the reverse of the used car salesman. Let me tell you all the things that are going to be tough about this. Let me tell you all the things that are going to be hard. And we think, well, he's trying to, is he trying to weed out the people who aren't really there? What, what is going on? And I really want us to understand that he's trying to offer encouragement and he is inviting people to follow. In fact, he says, I want you to follow. So here, here's what that means. I'm inviting you. You've got it right. I'm the Christ. I'm going to suffer and die, but I'm going to rise again. Here's what it looks like to follow. And he uses intense language, language which sometimes is lost on us, right? Pick up your cross and follow me. The cross was the favored instrument of execution for the Romans. In fact, many failed messiahs were killed upon crosses. And so the idea that they said, you're the Christ, and he's like, you are right, I am actually the Christ, and by the way, I'm going to die, and by the way, you should pick up your cross, that sounded very uh, defeatist to the ancient ear. Pick up the cross. That's where the failed messiahs go, Jesus. So if you are actually the messiah, if you are actually the Christ, why, why would you use that language? Whoever would lose his life for my sake would save it. Whoever would seek to save it will lose it. it this topsy-turvy language, this opposite understanding. But what I want you to understand is that Jesus is inviting the disciples to consider what they have just realized about Christ and to see that there is a cost, but that the cost is worth it. That we have a high, in fact, the highest cost asked of us as believers if we choose to follow Christ. Our whole life, everything that we are. That being said, we have an incomparable reward in Christ, the King, the Son of God, a resurrected Messiah, something that is immeasurable, incomparable. And so in many places we see Jesus illustrate in parables. The man finds the treasure in the field. What does he do? He sells everything because of the immense value of what's there. The merchant finds the pearl. He sells everything because of the incredible value of what he's found. Disciples, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. You realize what you've found. But are you prepared to sell everything? And I want to focus specifically for the remainder of our time on the words, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And I want to talk about Christ and his word. I want to talk about are we going to be a people who follow Christ are we going to be shamed or are we going to be standing? Are we going to be ashamed of God's word or are we going to stand on God's word? And I'm going to give you three examples as we talk about it. Three questions are the way that I'm going to phrase them. And I want you to understand that each and every one of these, these could be a sermon series in and of themselves. I mean, we're talking about, I could wrap up probably 
three, four years of preaching, and I'm trying to do this in the span of much less than that. So, so breathe easy. It's not going to be that long, but I just want you to understand if it feels like he's just going along the surface, I feel like there's a lot more that we need to discuss. You're correct. I'm just trying to give you an illustration. I want to talk about three examples of application of are you going to be ashamed of God's word or are you going to stand on God's word? Three examples bound in culture. First, I'm going to give you an example of personal to me. Okay, then I'm going to give you an example of the modern church, a question that we've had to deal with as elders here at Life Community Church. And then the third thing I'm going to talk about is is a growing conflict, a question that you need to be aware is going to come to you at some point in time. And it absolutely will come more regularly for your children or grandchildren and for the generations to come. And so... I want to share with you to begin a story from my personal life, an example. And in my personal life, I found myself in college, sitting in one of the dining hall facilities across from a young woman, a young woman who I was very interested in. And as we were talking back and forth, I had met her at church, you know, I asked her to have lunch with me and we're sitting there and she looks at me and she says, so what do you think about women pastors? And my heart sank a little bit. It may surprise you that she asked that, but what would probably be more surprising is this is probably the third or fourth girl that I've been in this scenario with at this point in time in my life. That, and... Just to give you an idea, I answered the same way to them, and I'm on the third or fourth one that's asked this question. So it did not go well, the first three. But I knew what the scriptures said, and I knew what I believed. And as any man will probably tell you, there's probably no more tempting scenario to be in to compromise what you know and what you believe than when you're trying to impress a girl. So let me just read for you really quick from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. There's many other passages. You could have a whole big discussion on it. I'm just trying to give you surface level, right? The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, this is same as pastor, same as elder, same as bishop. All these words are interchangeable. He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he will become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So, in the scriptures, I think it's very clear that preacher in office or in title is something that is designed by God for men to fulfill. That men are made in such a way, men and women are different, men are made in such a way that this is something that they do, women are made in such a way that they are to fulfill other roles of equal importance. But I know that this is true, and I know this is not a popular answer, and so I'm faced with the dilemma in this example. And I sort of say in resignation that this is going to be the last lunch that I have 
with this young lady. I think that pastors are, that's something that God has designed for men, that, you know, that's very clear in God's requirement for a pastor, that they are supposed to be men, and I, and I lay it out, you know, you shouldn't use the title pastor, you shouldn't function as a pastor. And she says, okay, good, me too. And I did marry that woman. Not right then, but, you know, later, right? I did. And I was humbled and I was surprised that I stood on God's word. And I was blessed because of it. That's from my personal life. Would I be shamed by God's word or would I stand on it? Modern church. This has happened in the last few years. We've had to deal with a lot of different difficulties in regards to how are we going to relate to government, local, state level, national? How are we going to govern ourselves? How are we going to be able to make our own decisions when all of a sudden the state, the local government, etc. make decisions for us and different things? And the question that I was posed and that we were posed as elders is, well, can't, can't you just live stream it? Can't you just live stream it? I mean, do you really need to gather together to worship? We're in a pandemic here, people. Now, regardless of how serious or not serious or whatever your opinions are on the physical nature of the pandemic, what I want you to understand is that the elders, myself included, while we did suspend meeting for a short period, became quickly convicted of what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We became convicted that it is not God's design to try and connect with one another through a computer screen. And while there are situations and circumstances that may arise where we are happy to provide that opportunity to people who are unable to make it, that should not be the regular solution. That there is something unique and wonderful as God's people gather together to see one another, to bless one another, and to glorify Christ. Not a popular opinion, particularly in this area. And we knew that when we made that decision, and when we announced that decision, that it was, in that moment, going against what our local authorities were saying. And we had to decide that it was better for us, in the words of Peter, in Acts, we must obey God rather than men. 
that if God has commanded us to do something and the government of any level has commanded us to do the opposite, we will obey God. And so we made that decision. And as a matter of fact, Virginia then five days later made that decision that it was fine. So I'd like to make the point, we did make the decision first, but God confirmed it thereafter that this, this is in fact what you should be doing. And I repent of the fact that it took us as long as it did. And I'm glad that we did make that decision and we would make that decision again. What we gain as we worship together as God's people is too valuable a thing to give up so easily. But there's still a third thing, a growing conflict. And this is something that uh, if you follow broader online trends and different things that are going on, you may have heard something about this over the last couple weeks. Uh, There's a very well-known pastor, in fact, a pastor who I've listened to probably more sermons from than anybody in my life save one person, and that one being my father. And that man is Alistair Begg. And he, who has had decades of faithful ministry experience on a radio show back in September, but recently come back to light, gave advice to a grandmother who asked basically this question. Should I attend my relative, this is, would be their grandchild, their trans wedding or same sex, etc. You can insert any letter of the alphabet here. You know, they keep adding to it. I don't know, right? But this question will come up to you and you will be pressed on it at some point in time in your life if you haven't already. And it absolutely will be something that your kids have to deal with. And so Alistair Begg, who I love and have benefited immensely from in his teaching, gave what I think is an unwise and wrong answer to this, which he encouraged the grandmother to go, and in fact, not only to go, but to give a gift in the name of love. And so I want to read for us a couple passages and just talk about why I think this is a truth that we need to stand on. So first off, I want to read for us from Romans chapter 1. There's many places you can go to read about what God thinks about same-sex unions and relationships and all of the perversions and different things that we see today. We're just going to read this one. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. After, this is after they have rejected their creator, claiming to be wise, they've been made dark. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. It continues on until at the very peak, God gives them up to not only do all of these things, but also to give approval to those who practice these things. I also want to read for us from Genesis chapter 2, because wedding 
and marriage is God's idea. And it's a creational idea. It's not something that's limited to the church. It's not something that can only be celebrated by Christians. But it's a common grace to all of humanity created in the image of God. And the very first one in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22 Happened this way, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, I don't believe that any of these passages are would be news to somebody like Alistair Begg. I, and I firmly believe that he firmly believes all of these things. But where I think that he's mistaken is I think we need to understand that weddings in particular are a celebration that is a participation in the event that's happening. And weddings are designed by nature to be participatory, right? That when the bride comes to the end of the aisle, everybody stands up. That at the end, when the union is pronounced in front of everyone, you rise, you clap, you applaud. Because there's the sense that something wonderful and mysterious has taken place. Something incredible. A union and an image of God joined together to reflect the Creator. And not only this, but we see in other passages, such as Ephesians, that this is a incredible representation of Christ and the church as well. One that even unbelievers can participate in and show forth. An incredible and beautiful thing. And therefore, I think it's obvious when we understand these things that for a believer, you cannot go and participate in such a thing because you would be elevating and agreeing with that which God harshly condemns, which God has in many places in his scriptures said is an abomination. This is a judgment. And it is foolish for us to say, well, we wouldn't agree with any of the line of Romans 1, but then to jump to the end and say, but we will give approval to those who do. And to attend a wedding like that would be that exact thing. Now, I want to line all three of these things together now and talk about this idea very quickly uh, in relation to evangelism because I think our culture that we have come up in, if you've lived here for your whole life, the culture that we've come up with has been one that has, in the name of evangelism, sacrificed truth very often. And that doesn't mean that you have to be a jerk about any of these things. It doesn't mean that you go around and just saying, and you're condemned, and you're condemned, and you're condemned. That, I mean, that's true. We are called to share the truth in love, but in there is the truth. You see, without the truth, there is no love. Without the truth, there is no love. And so if somebody point blank asks you, what do you believe? What does the Bible say? You need to answer truthfully. And if you have a relative who, for some reason, invites you to their wedding, knowing that you don't agree with it and knowing your faith that you walk in, you can absolutely take that person out to lunch and explain to them why you won't be coming 
but why you love them anyway and why you want to do what you can to show that love to them in the way that God has given you. You absolutely can do that. And you could do that in any one of these situations with people that you don't agree with. Quite frankly, there are so many things that we should stand against and that we should get ourselves up and moving against. We don't need to waste our time going around and being a jerk about it. In the midst of this, I think if we're honest, though, that when it comes down to it, Compassion is often a mask for, for cowardice on our parts. And I stand in solidarity with you on that part. I shared with you my opening story that this was something that I was not excited about, to share this truth. And I knew the consequences that would have it, but I knew I couldn't disobey Christ. And so I did it sort of begrudgingly. I was not a happy, obedient person in that moment. I want you to understand that we need to see the world as God sees it. And it's through the lens of love, but it also is through the lens of division that there are those who love Christ and there's those who hate him, those who are enemies of Christ. And we were enemies of Christ, but through the power of the gospel, through the truth, we are now his friends, his family. Right? The truth will set you free. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Maybe you're sitting here today and you think, I've already, I've already screwed this up. I already, I've already felt embarrassed by God's word. I've already compromised on these different things. And I want you to know that by the grace of God, no failure needs to be permanent. Even Peter himself after the resurrection of Christ, failed pretty spectacularly. He had to be rebuked by the Apostle Paul for compromising and going along with a group of people who were keeping the Gentiles at arm's length out of the church. And Peter was restored. How do we remain standing? How do we hold fast as these things come? How, do we, how can it be said of us that we did pick up our cross and follow Christ? That we did say, I was not ashamed. I want you to consider two things as we close out our time today. The first thing I want to encourage you to do is count the treasure. Now, many times we talk about count the cost to follow Jesus. You should do that, but that comes second. Right? That comes second. First, count the treasure. It's not a mistake that before Jesus gives this command, there's the confession of him as Christ and the prediction of both his suffering and resurrection. In other words, you found the treasure in the field. You found the treasure that, that the glory of Christ, the Son of God, and the inheritance of his kingdom is yours. It has been bought by the precious blood of Christ shed on his cross. It has been secured for you in his resurrection and ascension to his throne. 
There is nothing that you will ever find on the face of this earth that has even remotely the same value as that. And so daily, as you get up, you should count that treasure that is yours in Christ. You should raise up and give glory and praise to Jesus for what he has done for you. And I assure you, if you do not, you will not be proud to stand on his word. You will be ashamed of him. You will treat his commands as if they are burdensome to you. Oh, but in light of what he has done for you, in light of who Christ is, what is losing my life in comparison to that? What is forfeiting one friendship with the world or all the friendship with the world in comparison with knowing my Savior? Count the treasure. Count it daily. And the second thing I'd say is pay the cost. It, it's worth it. If you don't think it's worth it, go back to step one. Count the treasure again. It's not a trick. Count it. Count the treasure. Pay the cost. Brothers and sisters, we are going to be pressed continually and increasingly in our culture who reject God's design on some of the most basic and fundamental levels. You will be pressured and you will be asked, where do you stand on this issue? Because we have gone past just the point of, just allow me to do my thing. And we're now at the point of, and you must approve. We aren't truly losing anything in comparison to what we are gaining. And you may be thinking, if I share the truth, if I share the gospel with somebody, what if I lose a friend? I just want you to understand, you're not, you're not losing friends. Those people, if they hate Christ, if they hate his words, they're not your friend. Not in any lasting sense of the word. Those who would say you need to tolerate them will have no tolerance for Christ or his word or you who stand on it. But if you're willing to be bold, if you're willing to share the gospel, if you're willing to do that, you might see the work of God in somebody's life. You might see something incredible that was unexpected. When you count that treasure of Christ, don't forget what he has done for you. Don't forget how he has brought you from death to life and how he can do that for any person in any place at any time. And if he invites you to be part of that, it's a joy and a privilege. I'm gonna say a prayer for us and we're gonna close out with a song, a song, a hymn uh, from the Gettys. O church, arise. And I wanna encourage you to make that the song of your heart, to say, Lord Jesus, help me to arise, 
to stand, to enjoy of the truth that you've given me, to in excitement of what you have done, stand on your truth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are none like you, a Savior so gracious and powerful, a God who loves us enough to confront us in our sin, but also to accept our repentance and turning to you, to pay the price that we deserved so that we might know you and inherit your kingdom. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would overjoy and overwhelm our hearts with your peace and love, that that might overflow out of us into the praise as we sing this song of response. In your great name we pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Life Community Church Alexandria. We believe that there should be no anonymous Christians, so we would love for you to visit and worship with us Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Please visit www.lifeccalexandria.org for more information. Thank you and God bless.